Great. Okay, so the uncaring God. How can a good God allow uh, suffering? Let me begin by suggesting that the issue of suffering can neither prove nor disprove any particular uh, worldview. And that is the case as much for Christianity as it is for any other uh, worldview. But having said that, it is a very, very good test to apply um, to any worldview. Um, just as cars need to be crash tested, because sadly cars crash, so worldviews, I suggest, need to be suffering tested because human beings suffer. And uh, many of us will know that very personally uh, this evening. And I'm convinced that Christianity has a uniquely intellectually and emotionally satisfying um, uh, argument to make when it comes to this particular accusation of suffering and a a good, all-knowing and all-powerful God. One of the dangers, I think, of a talk like this is that I and we treat the subject in quite a distanced, um, abstract, theoretical way, and we mustn't do that. And we mustn't do that for the simple reason that suffering quite simply, is, is terrible. And we do well to remember that as we begin. In the next 20 minutes, while I'm speaking, apparently 190 children will have been abused, 60 people will die from AIDS, 10 women will be raped, 2,160 people will die. In England and Wales alone, there'll be five divorces, 61 women will be diagnosed with breast cancer, And one person will commit suicide in the USA alone. And that's just 20 minutes of suffering. It doesn't bear thinking about the whole human history of suffering the world over. That's surely too much of a burden to think about. And I don't know how many people will cry in the next 20 minutes or shout with frustration or lose their temper or catch a cold or stub their toe or argue over the washing up or uh, be bullied at school or struggle with insomnia or have their bike stolen. You know, suffering is a universal uh, human experience. Did you know, apparently, if we averaged out the total number of people to have died violent deaths through the 20th century, if we averaged that number out... Um, then more people would have died violent deaths every day than the total number of dead from 9-11, from those 9-11 attacks. I think that's quite striking. Suffering, it demands to be taken seriously. And I guess that's why we're all here this evening. Let me suggest that there are two different types of people here this evening. See which category you fall into. You may fall into both. Uh, The first type, if I can call um, you, you this reverently, we are the wheelchair sufferer. And if this is you, you are here because suffering is a very real issue for you. Uh, it's an ongoing problem. You feel scarred and you, your tear ducts are well used. You're the wheelchair sufferer. The other group of people we may call the armchair questioner. And uh, if this is you, suffering may not be a particular experience which is causing you pain or depression at the moment. But for you, it's a real intellectual issue. And uh, you've come for the intellectual side of things. And as I say, it may well be that you find yourself sitting in both the armchair and the wheelchair at the same time. And it's quite an uncomfortable place to be sitting. But there are different ways of approaching this question, depending on where you're sitting. I propose as we go forward to deal, first of all, with an accusation and then um, to build a case as we go forward. The accusation, and this is where we get to this this little bit of paper. So if you've got it um, in front of you, that, that would probably help you, I think. The accusation is perhaps best expressed by David Hume here. 
And uh, he, he said this, a perfectly good and loving God would not allow suffering. Um, suffering does exist in the world, and therefore, that type of God uh, cannot exist. And the way the logic of his argument works is outlined there in the one, two, three, first on the sheet of paper. Uh, very simple, and it's very powerful. Uh, an all-powerful, knowing, and loving God simply wouldn't allow suffering in his world. Why would he? Uh, number two, there is suffering in the world, manifestly so. He doesn't need to prove that. Therefore, number three, an all-powerful, knowing, and loving God cannot exist. Now, I don't know how you kind of feel listening to that argument. When I first heard it, I thought, wow, that's pretty watertight. Um, he, he's kind of in, in just three lines kind of um, taken the rug from under my feet as, as a Christian and maybe every other theist the world over. But when we look closely at the logic of David Hume's argument here, um, we'll see what many, if not most, contemporary philosophers have seen, I think quite rightly, as a logical, vital flaw in the argument. And this is where we get on to the one, two, three, four, five, the second part of that sheet. Let's just um, walk through slowly and, and pay careful attention. What David Hume is really saying is this, an all-powerful, knowing, and loving God wouldn't allow suffering in this world without good reason. Number two, I personally can't think of a good reason to allow that suffering. Number three, therefore there isn't a good reason. Number four, there is suffering in the world, we know that. Therefore, number five, an all-powerful, knowing, and loving God cannot exist. And I don't think it takes a Harvard philosophy professor to see the logical flaw in that particular line of, of argument. It's in steps two to three. Would you agree? Steps two to three. This theodicy accusation assumes that since we cannot think of a sufficiently good reason for God to allow terrible suffering in the world, therefore God cannot have a good enough reason to allow suffering in the world. But surely I want to put it to you that is a mistake which stems from an overinflated view of humanity and what we can and cannot understand. Think about it for a moment. Just because something doesn't make sense to someone doesn't mean it's meaningless. Uh, one of my friends, James Watson, has just recently completed a, a maths PhD at Oxford University. And uh, he sent me a WhatsApp picture of some of his um, equations the other day, and I just couldn't understand the beginning or the end or the middle of them. It was impossible. But imagine for a moment that an eight-year-old child came across James's thesis and began flicking through. Not a very exciting read, I expect. Um, but he can't make any sense of these equations, rather as I couldn't. Fine. We'd expect that. But then imagine this eight-year-old child deduces that these equations, therefore, are utterly meaningless. Well, James would disagree. He did pass his PhD, by the way. They did, they did have meaning. The eight-year-old simply doesn't have the brain power to get it, doesn't have the insight to see the meaning of these equations. Just because he doesn't understand them doesn't mean that they are meaningless, quite obviously. And in a similar way, why would we assume that we would know everything God knows. Surely, I want to put it to you, that would be misguided. The thing is that although the David Hume accusation sounds persuasive, the logic is flawed, if God is big enough to put the blame of human suffering on, and this is important, then surely he is big enough to have reasons for suffering which are not known to us. 
That's such a key sentence. I'm going to say it again. If God is big enough to put the blame of human suffering on, then surely he is big enough to have reasons for suffering which are not known to us as human beings. So in answer to his question, why would an all-powerful, knowing and loving God allow suffering on his earth, I want to suggest the Christian, the humble, the honest, intellectually honest answer is this. I don't know. That just is the answer. And I want to say that is not defeatist. That is not me uh, surrendering my intellectual credibility. That simply is the answer. But there's more we can, there's more we must say, otherwise it'll be a short talk for big questions this evening. And I now want to build the case for God being um, both deeply caring and sovereign over the deep suffering that we all experience in his world. Recently, Katie and I um, discovered there was a leak in our flat roof, and it's caused us real distress. And so, of course, first things first, we got the guys round to see that the roof and the flat who made it, the, the manufacturers, uh, to see whether they would uphold the guarantee for us. And as they were walking over this felt roof and arming and ahhing and stroking their beards in their high-visibility jackets, the question they were asking was this. Uh, is this a manufacturing fault, or is it down to the misuse of John and Katie? Have they been sort of grinding cheese graters on the roof and walking over in spikes and doing all sorts of things which would actually void the guarantee? Um, Is this a manufacturing fault or down to the misuse of the owner? And the Bible story begins with the creation of the world where God creates a perfect world. And the Bible really means that when it says that. God stands back like a painter looking at the canvas finished and he says, it's good, it's very good. All of which may leave us asking the rather profound question, what on earth has happened to it since? What's gone wrong? It's been said that the news is the time where the news presenter begins by saying good evening and then proceeds to tell us all the reasons why it isn't a good evening. And of course, that rings true with us. Syria, uh, the immigration crisis, ISIS, flooding. Um, When I wrote this talk, in that very week, I'd heard of someone wanting to have an abortion and someone diagnosed with a debilitating illness. It does appear that the roof of our world is leaking, and leaking rather badly. And the question is this, is it a manufacturing fault, or is it down to the misuse of the owner? Has our world been made faulty, or has it been misused? And the Bible's answer is this, that we, that humanity, have misused the perfect world which God made. As humanity turned our backs on God, the joy giver, and the order sustainer, and the life giver, We invited sadness into the world, uh, chaos into the world, and death into the world, along with all of their dark associates. It's what happens when we reject God. And with the friendship broken between us and God, all sorts of other horizontal, we might say, relationships started to fall apart too. If you read Genesis, I recommend it, it is a page-turning thriller. Um, The first murder occurs within one generation, and rape Jealousy, adultery, deceit, and death come soon after. Sin, which is the Bible's word for our rejection of God, leads to suffering. That's the clear link in the Bible. And it's not only relational stuff that goes haywire, but natural stuff as well. You'll you'll see if you read the account that the, the ground is cursed, as well as Adam and Eve. 
and our world, which was meant to be our servant, uh, becomes oppressive to us, growing thorns and weeds and breeding tsunamis and earthquakes and all the rest of it. And our rejection of God as humanity is rather like an orchestra ignoring its conductor so that everything begins to fall apart. And as the violins start to play what they want to play and the trombones play what they want to play, order and beauty are lost. And it's really not very nice to listen to or even to be in the same room as. And if we drill down into the cause of suffering, the Bible would say that we, f- we find its root in our rejection of God. That is the root of suffering according to the Bible. Now we may want to talk more about that in Q&A. Do write down your questions uh, so you don't forget them now. But it is interesting that the very beginning of the Bible story there, as I've recounted it, gives currency to the way in which we feel when we suffer and the way in which we reason when we suffer as well. As a church pastor, I suppose I get to meet more than my fair share of people who at least admit that they're suffering. People feel uh, able to be honest when I'm wearing a dog collar a bit more. How are you doing? And the answer sometimes isn't fine uh, for a change. And one of the universal responses I get to see uh, that we have as human beings to suffering is anger and indignation, along with the tears and the depression. Even disbelief sometimes, that's what we call shock uh, as well. Perhaps that's been your experience. But we feel on a very deep down level that suffering is not only painful, but, and I do think this is profound, we feel on a deep down level that suffering is wrong. We feel that it's wrong, and we feel that aggressively sometimes. And as I take funerals, I see people cry. Uh, Rich people, you can imagine around here, billionaires, really rich people, I see them cry when they see the coffin. Intelligent people, university professors, they cry uh, in the face of death. Really, really lovely, kind people, charity workers, I see them cry in funerals. Why? Because whoever we are, whatever the size of our bank account or brain... Uh, We're rendered powerless in the face of death, and we are faced with something we cannot fix and we don't understand. And our response, I think, as humans, is when we come across things like that is for the tear duct to, to get active. We just cry when things are outside of our control and we wish it were otherwise. And there's that sense of anger and indignation there at the funeral. And it's interesting, isn't it, that the Bible vindicates how we feel when we suffer. But let me ask you, why would we feel those things if we don't believe in God? After being bereaved, C.S. Lewis, the Christian apologist and author of the Narnia stories, came to realize that suffering provided a better argument for God's existence than one against it. And I'm going to quote him. He wrote this, My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I I could have given up my idea of justice by saying that it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. Consequently, he writes, atheism turns out to be too simple. So may I politely suggest this evening that blue-blooded atheism has no right whatsoever to complain in the face of suffering. It has no explanation for tears 
at the graveside or at news of cancer when the doctor speaks to us. Because as Dawkins writes, DNA neither knows nor cares, and yet we dance to its music. In the words of A.N. Wilson, who's an ex-atheist, well-known writer, material atheism says that we are just a collection of chemicals and animated pieces of meat, which have no reason to expect not to suffer. If there is no God, then we have no right to complain or indeed to feel hurt when misfortune comes to our door. After all, it begs the question, who would we be complaining to? And therefore, it is true to say that the problem of suffering is a problem for everyone. Tim Keller, the uh, New York pastor, writes this, It is at least as big a problem for non-belief in God as it is for belief. It is therefore a mistake, though an understandable one, to think that abandoning belief in God somehow makes the problem of evil easier to handle. So, where have we got to? Sure, the world has been misused by humans. The Bible claims that sin is the cause of suffering. But we might be asking, what on earth has God done about it? It's all been rather negative so far, a bit somber for a Wednesday evening soon after Janet's birthday. And it turns out that God has done rather a lot about it. As the Bible account progresses, we find that in the person of Jesus Christ, God is not immune to suffering himself. In the person of Christ, he steps into our broken world and becomes susceptible to its deep down brokenness. And we'll think more about that next week. Do come back next week. I, I think next week's talk is one of the, 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 the real crucial talks of this whole Big Question series. But just let that claim sink in for a moment or two. Let me ask you, are you poor? Well, so was he. Are you a refugee? Well, so was he. Are you living in a country occupied by cruel foreign powers? Whatever you think of the Conservative Party. Well, so did he. Are you misunderstood by your family? Well, so was he. Have you been betrayed by a close friend? Well, so was he. Have you died an excruciating death? No? Well, he did. And the Bible story describes Jesus as one who knows suffering. Not as a professor of suffering, intellectually speaking, but as a sufferer, experientially speaking. He was a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. So can I say, when we hurt, in the most real of ways, Jesus Christ can empathize and sympathize with us. No other religion can claim that, no other. I can never say to Jesus Christ, you don't understand, you don't know what it's like, because he does. He's got the t-shirt, if I could put that reverently, and he's certainly got the scars to show it. But empathy is good, God can empathize with us in Jesus Christ, but empathy is not everything. What we need is remedy. And in Jesus' death on the cross, he has sown the seeds for everything to be fixed again. As he died, the claim is that he fixed sin, and since sin is the source of suffering, the eradication of suffering is guaranteed to come. It is the beginning of hope, concrete, Teflon-coated, real, guaranteed hope. The beginning of the roof being fixed again. You know, in John's Gospel, we're going to turn to our Bibles to look at a section of it in just a minute. The hour of Jesus' death 
very interestingly, is called the hour of his glory or the hour of his glorification. And that should strike us as really quite odd. For death, isn't it? Death is normally the moment of shame and defeat for somebody, the final breath. And we're given a clue as to why Jesus' breath was glorious in John chapter 19. Would you turn to your Bibles? They should be just in the back of your chairs. Wave a paw if you haven't got one there. But um, do turn to John chapter 19, page 1088, 1088. And we're just going to close looking at, at this. page 1088, and um, we'll just pick up under the italicized subheading, the crucifixion. Is everyone there? So under that heading, the crucifixion. If you don't have it, just, just listen in. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Now we'll skip down to verse uh, 28, under that subheading, the death of Jesus. Later, knowing that all was now completed, and so the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he'd received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. And I want to say, on the cross there, as Jesus died, Jesus not only cared for the world, empathized with us, but he instigated and began the cure for the world and the remedy for us and our suffering. There, he, he took all the sin, all of our rejection of God, the joy and the life giver, the order sustainer, he took that sin onto himself so that we might know joy and life to the full. And as he died on the cross, the claim is that it was as if he was the one who had been rejecting God, not us. He took my place. And so he took the punishment that I deserved and that you deserved. It is finished. It's the start of the fixing of the world so that the roof would no longer leak. They are three of the most marvellous words you'll read today. And three days later, Jesus was raised physically from the dead, historically raised from the dead, really raised from the dead. And we'll talk more about that next week. But the claim is that he has disarmed sin for all who trust in him. He's defeated death so that those who receive his salvation can look forward to a real, perfect and physical new creation where there's nothing wrong, nothing broken and only ever good. And um, I'm preaching on Sunday morning. It's a shameless plug, but I've, I've started my prep for it. C come along on Sunday morning. I I'm preaching on some of what that physical creation will be like. It's very, very exciting. I'm excited anyway. But as I close, 
I don't know, cast your mind back, if you would, to the last time you were just flabbergasted by the beauty of a view. Can you do that? It probably wasn't in London, although I was on a run the other day and uh, it was a beautiful sunset over the Thames and it was really quite nice. But when was the last time you were just flabbergasted by the beauty of a view? Or the last time your face hurt from laughing and smiling so much with friends and family through the day? It just hurt as you were lying in bed at the end of it. Or cast your mind back to that that feeling of the acceleration of a sports car as you're just pinned to the seat and the thrill of it. Or the kiss of the first spring sun on your skin. I had that line in the talk before today, but it's appropriate for today, isn't it? Or that music that makes you want to dance, or if you're English and won't dance, just tap your foot. You know, just think of those times where your body experienced beauty. And where you just wanted to bottle that moment up and keep it for a rainy day. And the God of the Bible tells us that those experiences in that bottle are a trailer of heaven to come. I don't know whether you shop on Amazon and regardless of their tax (laughs) arrangements, at the bottom of the Amazon page, I think I'm right in saying they always used to have it, it says, if you like this, then you, you may like this. You know, so if, if you buy um, Mozart classical music, you, you may like Brahms, I don't know. They, they try and make you buy more stuff. And here, in the Bible, it's as if, saying, if you like those things you were thinking about, that view, that music, that sunshine, the thrill of the sports car acceleration, if you like those things, you will love the new creation. You will love heaven, that physical paradise that I have in store for you. Because the best bits of life now are but a shadow of every day there. A place where there'll be no sin and therefore no suffering. Where if you or I tried to explain to somebody there what it felt like to stub your toe or have depression or break up with your partner, they would look at you in the face and say, I'm sorry, I don't understand what you mean. Now, I know that it being marvellous doesn't make it true. But would you agree that it has the emotional satisfaction to match the intellectual credibility that we've already seen? And if you're not convinced this evening, then might I politely ask you in an English sort of way what your best answer is to this issue? Suffering. Uh, Atheism says despair, religion says try harder, but God in the Bible gives us his son and says trust me. So over to you guys now, Um, chat on tables and do write down any questions you have for me at the end, but over to you, thank you for listening. Just wave a bit of paper in the air and um, we can add them in.
Um, okay, so the first question for you is, is suffering random or is someone dishing it out? For example, God or the devil, why is it not equally apportioned? And we were having a similar conversation on our table about why it is that some people seem to suffer more than others and those who cause suffering often seem to get away with it. <laughs> Thank you. And I, I'm so glad that was the first question because it's the first most important thing I didn't address, I think, in the talk, so, so forgive me for that. I actually turned to this passage um, preemptively because I thought it might come up. But John chapter 9 um, is a very famous time where um, Jesus and his disciples pass a blind man, a man born blind, so blind from birth. Yeah, it's quite severe suffering. And the question is asked, um, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Um, the assumption is that one's individual suffering comes in line with, with one's sin. And Jesus' answer is very instructive. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. And the, the same um, idea comes through in Luke's gospel with the Tower of Siloam. There's a, a kind of national disaster and a tower falls and many people are killed by it. And uh, Jesus teaches there again that one's individual suffering is not coming proportional to one's sin. So it's not the case that one can look at someone um, with severe cancer and say, well, you must have been terribly sinful. Um, that is much more of a sort of karma idea um, that you find in, in, um, in, in uh, Buddhism. In Christianity, there is a corporate understanding that the decision that Adam and Eve made in the Garden of Eden to reject God and the suffering that ushered into the world is um, we made that decision with them if we had been in their shoes, we would have made that decision. And therefore, we all experience the varied consequences of that. There's a corporate responsibility there. Um, there's, there's, I trust as a Christian that no individual will suffer more than they can cope with. And suffering actually is one of God's means. C.S. Lewis um, called it God's megaphone to, um, speak to, to wake up a, a deaf world. I haven't got that quite right, but his megaphone to wake up a deaf world is basically his way of saying, you as humanity are not self-sufficient, you're not autonomous, you're not okay on your own, you need to rely on me. And often that is my experience as a pastor, when a significant thing goes wrong in the world, what it makes people think is, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, I thought I was okay with my savings account and my life insurance, but actually that's not enough. And I find, we find people coming to church for that reason. Some people become Christians for that reason. It's God's means of pushing people to depend on him. If you're a Christian here this evening, God uses suffering in your life in wonderful ways. He uses what is evil. Suffering is not good. He uses what is evil for good. Um, we find that in Romans 5 and then Romans 8, 28, if you want to look up those verses. But it's a way of him knocking off the rough edges of our character and molding us to look more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And many of us could bear testimony to, to that in our lives. But probably important to reiterate on that, that the Bible is very clear. God doesn't like suffering. He doesn't approve of suffering. And he will one day judge those who judge, judge us for causing suffering. There will be judgment for that. And there will be a world without suffering. That is his intention at the end of, end of the day. So although he can use suffering for good things, that is not the way it's meant to be. And he has brought about a solution to that that he's begun through the Lord Jesus. So I don't know if come back on that one at this stage. Thank you. Um, read Job. It's a, it's a 42 chapters worth of wonderful literature and quite a sobering read. Um, but I think chapter one of Job is really, really instructive. So if you're short on time in the bath this evening, have a bath. Um, and read Job one and two. 
And there, just in brief, I'll give a little thumbnail sketch, we find that God is absolutely in charge of everything happening in the world, and Satan has to ask God for permission to do things in the world. This is raising questions as I go through. It should raise questions in our mind. Um, There's a righteous man called Job, and uh, um, Satan says, look, basically, no one's worshipping you, God. He says, God says, have you considered my servant Job? Um, And then basically Satan says, I think Job is only worshipping you, God, because of the blessings you're pouring out on him. Because Job would have lived around here, he was very wealthy, had a big family, they all went to boarding school, very blessed. And Satan was saying, he's only worshipping you because you dip out out the blessings. You're a very positive vending machine to him. And um, Satan then says, let's see if Job worships you regardless of the blessings. And uh, God says, okay. And that's one of the scandals of Job. God says, okay. And so he permits Satan to take away his riches and his family. And then in the end, he permits him to take away his good health. But the point is that Satan is always the agent of evil. It is not God, but God allows him to. But there's a tension there. And there is a reason for him allowing Satan to to do it. It is for his own glory and actually for Job's good, if you read the whole book right to the end. Yeah. And similarly, right back in Genesis 2, when, when God said pictorial image, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, this is what he said to Adam and Eve, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from this tree for knowledge of good and evil, if you do, you'll surely die, that sense of kind of saying to people, much as he let Satan sort of have his way with Job, he gave human beings the opportunity to choose to worship him, or to choose to rebel against him, and every time we choose to rebel against him, we, we are catalysts, so in a sense, is it God dishing that out, or is that um, God giving us the opportunity to choose to follow him or to choose to rebel against him and consequently cause suffering, if that makes sense. Because um, it's not sort of necessarily a direct God throwing it into the world. It's actually him giving people the freedom to, to do that. Um, another question for you. This is a multi-stage question. One thing I don't understand. These are the best ones, yeah. Suffering exists because of sin. God wants to remove suffering, but he can't until we renounce sin. How is this reconciled with God giving free will to man? I guess much like that Genesis 2. Yeah. Well, I, I want to say that it's not as complicated as the questioner is making out, which may be a, a sign that I have misunderstood the question, so forgive me and come back to me if I've misunderstood it. But I think you know, on one level it's very simple. Um, free will fits in with suffering and sin in quite a simple way. God, as the creator of the universe, knows how best his world is to be enjoyed and lived in. Sin is, the very, is by definition, turning away from him and disobeying the maker's instructions for how to live in his world. And it is therefore no surprise that turning away from the maker's instructions leads to suffering. It's just that we have this illness in ourselves called sin, which makes us always think we know better and try and set up this... Try and, it's like trying to set up this nice complicated thing without looking at the instruction manual and thinking that, that the maker has nothing to do with enjoying it. Actually, therefore, sin, turning away from the maker, would always lead to suffering. Have I misunderstood the question? Either you're too timid or, or I have, or I haven't. No, I haven't. Okay, good. I'll take that. Great. One more question. Um, what, and this might need a bit of clarification, what is the difference between us... Christians accepting God through Christ and a Muslim's belief. Grace, I don't know whether you were going <coughs> to...
can everyone hear Jeffrey? Can you hear Jeffrey? Um, good question. I think there is, we talked a bit about this last week, one half of the answer I think is on the driver behind belief for the Muslim and the Christian, and they couldn't be more different. And forgive me for those who were here last week, but it's, it bears repeating, I think, that um, the Muslim is driven, I would say, by fear, because they have no uh, means to assurance in their salvation. So they have to keep, make sure they try and get to Mecca regularly, pray five times a day, that sort of thing. And even then, there's no guarantee that they, they're doing enough to make it to their idea of paradise, which incidentally um, is quite a selfish idea of paradise, I would say. The Bible's idea of heaven is, is heaven precisely because God is there and he is the main focus, which is quite different in and of itself. But they're driven by fear, whereas the Christian is driven by assurance. Uh, some people find it very proud, but I would say, I know if I was knocked over on a car cycling back home this evening and I, I died, you would have no need to worry about me because I know that I'll be welcomed into heaven. Now, why is that? It doesn't play particularly well at a dinner party. I would come across as the most arrogant man there. But actually, the Christian would say that is not an arrogant thing to say, it's the very definition of humility. Because it is me saying, no, Jesus Christ has done it all. I trust that he's done it all. He's the man and not me. So I'm driven by, by absolute assurance um, and a thankfulness for all that, all that God has done. Um, so I think, have I, do you want to come back to me, Jeffrey, on that? Oh, I feel like I've answered half of it. That's right, exactly so. I mean, um, there is, the Bible does speak about treasure in heaven and rewards in heaven, and it would, be, um, it would be untrue of me to say it doesn't. The way C.S. Lewis described that or explained that, which I find helpful, I think it's the most helpful explanation, is um, the reward in heaven for the Christian is if you imagine a, a little boy learning the piano and uh, his, his dad says, if you practice your piano, you'll be rewarded because I'll give you these sweets. That's one reward. The second reward, if you imagine the second scenario with the father saying, if you practice your piano, there'll be a huge reward for you. Daddy, what is it? Well, you'll be able to play the piano, and boy, will you enjoy it. Now, the second scenario there is much more akin to the rewards that the Christian can look forward to in heaven. Because what I'm doing now, um, in life now, is learning how to enjoy God. Uh, one of my, my verse for today is taste and see that the Lord is good that is a wonderful truth for the Christian I must say following him is nothing better so I'm, I'm learning to enjoy him and the more I do that the more there will be a reward and I tell you what it will be it will be enjoying God 
and heaven will be just full of that. So that is my understanding of Christian reward. I would say the Muslim reward is a bit more akin to here are some sweeties for doing your piano, kind of unrelated. It's because, and the reason I say that is because God is right at the centre of Christian uh, paradise. So if I enjoy him now, boy will I enjoy him then, and so will you. I think t- time has flown. Let me just, as always, flag up a couple of books. I seem to always flag up the reason for God. It's because I think it is a very good read. Um, we've sold very few of them. It must be because you don't believe me. Um, have a look at it. Just flick through. I think some of the sort of uh, chapter titles are very relevant and, and sharp. But the second uh, chapter is How Could a Good God Allow Suffering? Very uh, pertinent to this topic. This is a whole book on the topic, how, uh, Where is God in a Messed Up World? Very, very helpful and um, very practically applied. There is a good selection of psalms at the end to use devotionally in times of suffering, and it's quite, quite a devotional feel in the book. But have a look at that bookstore. I think we all get um, so into small talk, and the company's so great here that we tend to miss it on the way out. But if you want to buy a book, the prices are all there. and just It's kind of, kind of old school, but stick, stick a bit of cash in that um, green box, and uh, you're welcome to just walk away with it. So thank you. Thanks for coming. And next week, what is the title? The Human God, um, What's So Special About Jesus? And... I just think it's a great talk, not because I wrote it, but because the topic is fantastic. Um, Come on Sunday morning if you're interested in heaven and uh, what it might be like. Yeah, great. Thanks for coming.